This is the opening of Stone Pastures, my documentary film about a nomadic family living on the high Himalayan plateau of Ladakh in northern India. It took four years to make the film. During this time, I became a bit of a nomad myself, as I traveled between Ladakh and my two home countries, Ireland and Finland, where the film was produced. Stone Pastures was completed in 2008. Though my life had revolved around the nomads for many years, Ladakh faded from my mind as I moved on to new projects. Then at the end of 2009, I heard that one of the main characters of the film, old uncle Meme, had died at the age of 70. Memories of the old man came rushing back and I started reflecting on his life and my time in Ladakh. It all began with the research trip in 2003. After a long drive from Ladakh's capital, Leh, I'd arrived on the West Tibetan plateau where the nomads lived. As I pitched my tent at nearly 15,000 feet, I felt transported to an ancient world. The views of the nomad camp brought to mind American Indian villages I'd seen in Western films. Smoke wafting from the tent tops. In between the tents, horses grazing, people moving about in their long colorful cloaks, children playing by the river winding through the village. The mountains were dotted with goats and yaks. These pastoral people, who were closely related to Tibetans, lived to the rhythms of their animals. Every month or so they had to move camp, as the pastures were quickly exhausted in this mountain desert, which resembled the surface of the moon. I can't remember when I first met Meme. What I do recall is being invited for tea by nine-year-old Padma, the old man's beloved grandnephew, who was singing here. As I entered Padma's family tent made of dark yak wool, I was transfixed. The sun filtered through the loose weave, cutting shafts of light into the smoke rising from the stove inside. Behind the stove was Padma's mother Punsok, a handsome, charismatic woman, looking after her three-year-old son Kunzang. I felt I'd found the central characters for my documentary, which was to tell the story of one nomadic family. Nampak macam ni, 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 nampak
It was only later that I met Punsok's old uncle, who stayed next to the family in an old worn tent patched together from scraps of fabric. Meme, which means grandfather, was a striking character. Orange-brown eyes twinkled through tiny slits between thick folds of skin in a face lined with deep wrinkles. In his mid-sixties at the time, Meme was missing many teeth, but his hair, which he wore in braids, was still long and black. An extreme old bachelor, Meme dressed in layers of old worn robes, way past their use-by date, even by nomadic standards. Looking back, it was a great privilege to spend so much time with this old man. Growing up in the Himalayas of the 40s and 50s, Meme came from a totally pre-modern world. Apart from enjoying the old man's company, here I had the opportunity of getting to know someone from a world that's long since been lost. I've seen so much change in my life. From 16, I had to walk all the way to Tibet to get salt to barter. One round trip would take at least a month. We also used to take caravans to Zanskar. To reach there, we had to walk on the frozen river in the winter. We had to make four long trips like this in a year. So we didn't get much time with our wives. Nowadays, it's more relaxed. There are roads, and some families even have cars. Before, we really had to work hard just to fill our stomachs. Like elderly people the world over, Meme liked to point out how easy today's generation had it. Yet from the point of view of a Westerner like myself, life was tough enough in this extreme mountain environment even today. Here your face would be burning from the strong sun, while your toes were freezing in the shadow of your shoes. At this height, the air had only about half the oxygen as at sea level, and altitude sickness was inevitable. I was often exhausted as I pushed on with my work in the thin air. It was my first shot at a feature documentary, so I was giving it my all, doing whatever I could to make the film happen. Looking back, the extent to which I pushed myself was mad. My second research trip to Ladakh in the winter of 2004 nearly killed me. Although temperatures could drop down to minus 40 Fahrenheit, I could only afford very basic mountain gear, as we didn't have much funding for the documentary at this stage. At these altitudes, it was dangerous to move up more than a thousand feet per day, yet I went from Les 11,500 feet to 15,000 feet in one day to save time and money. As I lay in my tent that first night, I thought my head would split open from the sickening headache. 
I was hallucinating and going in and out of consciousness. These were symptoms of serious altitude sickness, which can be fatal. When I woke up the next morning, everything was sparkling. The head opening of my woefully inadequate sleeping bag, as well as the roof of my tent, was covered in ice crystals from my frozen breath. Unfortunately, we tend to push others as we push ourselves. And so when we finally got to the actual shooting, after years of research and gathering funding, my crew and subjects were in for a hard time. Rolling. It's okay when it's free. The goat can be free. Do you want to go and take care of Sonam's goats? We can just explain that. Maybe when we just give, give, give sign if he can just come, you know, and take the goat out. Okay, Sonam. Okay, this was, uh, uh, take nine. Uh, second take of Sonam taking goat from a rock hole. To ensure my first film came out well, I'd written a script which laid out the basic structure and story of the film. At times I became a megalomaniac director pursuing this story. For example, one winter day we were shooting Meme and his grandnephew Padma yak shepherding. Usually they'd have a tea break in some sheltered valley. However, I asked them to have their break on the open shores of a frozen lake where it was bitterly cold and windy. The drama and structure of the film, which followed the nomads through the seasons, demanded that winter scenes like this look as cold and harsh as possible. So cold. It's cold, isn't it? Yes, Mama. It's really freezing here. Take some tea, old man. Many of the yaks that Meme and Padma were shepherding used to belong to Meme, but were now owned by Padma's father, Sonam. Meme's wife died some ten years ago, and as the couple had no children, the old man wasn't able to look after all his animals alone. So he joined Padma's family and gave his animals to them, who in turn took care of the shepherding. Meme explains his relationship to the family with whom he spent his last years. As we had no children with my wife, my sister gave her daughter, Punsuk, as a kind of daughter to us. So it was also my responsibility to find her a husband. After she married with Sonam, my wife only spent five more years with me. She got ill and died at the age of 57. Meme would often mention this loss, the great sadness of his life. 
Later, after his niece Punsok and her husband Sonam had children, the old man turned his affection to the two boys Padma and Kunzang. Meme was especially close to the eldest son Padma, who was like a first grandchild for him. Those two boys are very dear to me. Maybe I'll live in this world for five or six more years. Who knows? Half of Sonam's livestock are mine, and I still have 15 yaks myself. Now I'm just working hard for the boys. Around the stove, where the family spent its time together, most of the talk seemed to revolve around very concrete, mundane matters, like the consistency of the noodles or the constipated baby yak. In this culture, people didn't really speak about their emotions that much, which wasn't good news for my documentary. Irish documentary storytelling is driven by talking, but I wasn't getting much out of which I could build a strong character-driven story. As our shooting progressed, I felt I needed some spark, some human drama, which usually means conflict. Here Meme came to my rescue. Actually, Sonam and Punsak aren't good to me. They hardly even talk to me. Still, I have to stay with them because I need someone to shepherd my animals. Our relations became worse last summer. Sonam had drunk lots of barley wine and started slinging stones at my yak. So we had a big fight. Since then, they've kept some black spots in their heart, especially Sonam. Meme wasn't mincing his words and would speak about his problems quite openly, even to his grandnephew Padma. Here, Meme is really blasting Sonam. In the end, I decided not to include this very personal, dramatic material in the film, and so I'll also leave this untranslated here. Those guys are recording all our talking. But they don't know our language. When the film is shown in Ladakh, people will hear everything. Going back to material like this reminded me of recent media discussion about a kind of cultural colonialism. Instead of mining natural resources and bringing the goods back to their homelands, filmmakers, photographers and journalists mine stories and human drama from developing countries. There's some major moral issues here. In these parts of Ladakh, for instance, the nomads have little idea how their images and talking might be used. Filmmakers can shoot situations where a more media-savvy Westerner would ask the camera to be turned off. There's a temptation to use subjects with little media awareness to get the kinds of intimate, personal stories that win awards at film festivals. The more conflict and drama, 
the better the chances of getting the project funded in the first place. Though I tried to be respectful when shooting, I was often thinking more about story than the actual people in front of me. In hindsight, I was also mining personal conflicts, though in the interests of presenting a balanced human view of these people, or so I told myself at the time. Sometimes running after a good story actually blinded me to what was really going on. For example, in the film I had in my head, Meme and Padma were inseparable, and the boy would often sleep over at the old man's tent. This is how it was when I did my research for the film. However, life had moved on in the years between the research that my script was based on and the actual shooting of the documentary. The sweet young boy had grown into a cantankerous teenager and would rarely visit his once-beloved granduncle. It was only out of my request that I got the two together in Meme's cramped tent one winter evening. We'd like to sleep now. They want to film us while we're sleeping. These people are taking such a long time with their camera. Also, they're keeping the tent door open. After the footage was translated, I found lots of comments like this about me and the crew. Of course, this didn't make it into the film, nor did the masses of X-rated dialogue. Living a very physical, earthy existence, the nomads were open about sex. Meme gave sexual advice to Padma from a very young age, telling dirty jokes that would make the back of my ears go red. This was normal here, but didn't fit the somewhat lyrical picture of pastoral life that we were trying to build. And so we left all that out. On the one hand, I was trying to get into the most secret, intimate parts of people's lives. On the other, I was censoring elements that didn't fit a preconceived idea of the film. Of course, reality is often more interesting than our preconceptions. Another thing that wasn't in the script was the headaches that teenage Padma was causing his old uncle. Most nomads dreamt of settling in Leh, where they might have a more comfortable town life. Education was seen as the way to this better life, and so parents were sending all their kids to school. Meme hoped that Padma would study well, so he could make the transition to modern life as painlessly as possible. Unfortunately, Padma didn't seem too interested in school books. Padma often runs away from school and never does his homework. It's up to him to study hard. But he's just quarreling and saying bad words to me. 
I'm trying to tolerate this because I think he's still just a child. In today's world, education is very important. When I was young, people used to have ten kids. But now they only have two or three due to family planning. Nowadays, the kids are sent to school and the parents have to look after all the animals themselves. It isn't easy. The world around the old man had certainly changed. In his lifetime, Meme witnessed developments much greater in scope than what my own grandparents or even great-grandparents in Ireland had experienced. Airplanes appeared in the skies, and cars speeding along paved roads left horse caravans far behind in the dust. To top it all, Meme lived to see a group of squeaky-clean, pink-faced strangers in fancy mountain gear descend upon his village. Babbling in a strange tongue and pointing our shiny cameras at the old man, our documentary crew was also a manifestation of modern development. Generally, Meme was very accommodating to our small three-man crew. For him, we were guests from far away to be treated with kindness and hospitality. We also invited the old bachelor for dinners in our kitchen tent, which probably played in our favour. The nomad village wasn't so tolerant. As we returned for another shooting trip, Padma's father Sonam pulled a grim face on us. Apparently the headman of the village had decided we wouldn't be allowed to shoot anymore, as our work was disturbing the community. The family felt caught between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, they'd promised we could follow them through a year, and we still had a long way to go. On the other hand, everyone in the village was now gossiping about the family and how much money they must be receiving from us rich Westerners, which certainly wasn't the case. As Sonam explained the situation, his wife Punsok broke into tears. I felt so low. I had no idea that underneath the relatively calm, friendly surface, the village was seething with jealousy. You'd think that after four years of visiting the place, I could have seen some signs of this coming. But here my real lack of knowledge about these people became painfully clear. I'd upset the village dynamics and put the family under great pressure, even turning the rest of the community against them. Here a few villagers, including some of the family members, are having a chat while milking goats together. Village people are saying Sonam is making a big film this year. They gossip about these things every day. Everyone is saying they're making big money from this tourist. 
It's really shameful. From the point of view of the production, it was also a disaster. We didn't have enough material to make the documentary and needed to shoot more. The village leaders knew how important this work was for me, so what they came up with next wasn't surprising. They wanted money. Once I made a donation to the village, the problem just seemed to evaporate and everybody, including the family, was happy again. The people I was filming weren't just unwitting victims of cultural colonialism. There was a system of exchange going on here, a two-way game that the nomads knew how to play very well. In fact, they attracted quite a few tourists, filmmakers, journalists and photographers, and were used to asking for something in return for having big cameras stuck in their faces. So what did my chosen family get in return for being filmed? I had in fact offered to sponsor their youngest son Kunzang to school, which is probably the main reason why they tolerated us as much as they did. The younger boy is going to a good school thanks to your kind help. I've also deposited 20,000 rupees in the bank for Kunzang. Now it depends on him how he does in school. Whatever work I do today is for the benefit of this family. I've already given Father Sonem most of my animals, and all my wealth will go to this family after I die. I have three sisters in Leh who are asking me to get out of these tough mountain conditions and move to town. But I will stay where I am. I was surprised to hear that Meme owned a house in Leh and could have retired there long ago on his savings. Instead, he stayed working in the mountains into his old age so he could save more money for the boy's future. Despite raggedy appearances, Meme was actually one of the richest men in the village. He was extremely frugal and did well in the nomadic trades of pashmina wool, butter and meat. He also made money by selling his villagers whiskey and Chinese packaged foods smuggled over the nearby Chinese-Tibetan border. You may think I'm poor because I'm wearing dirty clothes and staying in that old tent. But this is just my habit. Actually, I have four brand new tents. I just feel sorry for you. You must be losing so much money on that camera and traveling here all the time. Though Meme had enough savings to spend the rest of his life comfortably in Leh, this wasn't the case for most nomads. In town, the illiterate older generations would often end up doing hard physical labor, as this was the only work they could get. Even the educated younger generation didn't have it easy in town, where they had to compete with highly qualified graduates for scarce jobs. The younger boy Kunzang was in a good school and had some hope of moving up in the modern world, 
but it didn't look that promising for Meme's favorite grandnephew Padma, who dropped out of school at the age of 14. Seeing his bleak prospects in town, Meme hoped that Padma would become a good nomad. <laughs> Padma should know how to shepherd well. This is also a kind of knowledge. The nomadic occupation is good for those who put in the work. This is the way of our ancestors. Today, people are more interested in other kinds of business and motor vehicles. People are saying, just go to Lei. It's more relaxing there. But you can't survive anywhere without working hard. As the shooting drew to a close, I was trying to capture as much of this fading way of life as I could. After the crew left, I stayed with the nomads for a few days more, shooting bits and pieces that might prove useful in editing. The very last day, the nomads were moving camp once again. With the villagers' belongings packed on their backs, the hundreds of yaks raised clouds of dust as they moved across the plateau. Although we'd already shot this majestic scene, I wanted to shoot it again, just to make sure we had enough good moving footage. He really is a greedy man. But I don't know whether he'll continue to pay our son's school fees in the future or not. For all our shooting trips, we'd had an excellent translator guide who was originally from this village. Up to then, he'd helped to arrange anything I'd requested, but this time he was hesitant when I asked him about shooting the moving. Now it's enough, the guide told me. The village was talking about us again, and it would be wise not to shoot anymore. So what did I do? Thinking that a few shots wouldn't hurt, I put up my tripod on the bend of a high road and filmed the nomads as they moved across the plateau with their herds. After we'd settled in the new camp later that day, my guide gave Father Sonam a lift with our jeep to a distant storehouse where the family kept things they weren't carrying with them. I stayed back to spend this last day with Meme and his niece Punsok. Soon it was evening. The men were supposed to be back for dinner, which went cold as we waited for them. Finally, around 10 p.m., the headlights of the jeep appeared from the darkness. As Sonam and the guide stumbled out from the jeep, their feet would hardly carry them. Thanks to the deities, we're so lucky to be alive, both exclaimed. Apparently they were driving back from the storehouse when they reached the place on the road bend where I'd been filming this morning. At this point, the steering wheel was suddenly jerked to the right by some unseen force. 
the car was almost thrown off the cliff. It was only the guide's fast reaction that saved them. He forced the steering wheel in the opposite direction so violently that the front tires burst and the car screeched to a halt. I could hardly believe it, and yet the men were visibly shaken. I was also thinking about the next day, as we had to return to Leh with the same jeep. A six-hour drive awaited us over some of the highest roads in the world. To take this jeep for such a trip seemed suicidal, as the car could have had some serious mechanical or electrical problems. As the guy tried to convince me there was nothing wrong with our vehicle and that our drive tomorrow would be fine, I was faced with a very different worldview. According to him, an obstacle had been thrown our way and we were lucky to have passed through it unharmed. Now the obstacle was exhausted, so we didn't have anything to worry about. The guide had even sprinkled the car with barley seeds blessed by the Dalai Lama. This was supposed to make me feel better. It was only much later that the guide told me what had happened. A neighbour of the family, an older lady who'd been very friendly with us, was jealous we were giving a lift to Father Sonam. She'd been talking with Sonam's wife Punsok just after the jeep left. Apparently the neighbour also needed to visit her storehouse and was upset we didn't offer her a lift. The villagers knew this lady to have special powers. Apparently her anger and jealousy could manifest in extraordinary ways and she was even known to possess people with her powerful mind. In my guide's view, it was this lady's jealousy and anger that had pulled on the steering wheel. Also, it was no coincidence that this happened on the spot where I'd been filming earlier today. As Meme would say, talking about karma, actions have consequences. I'd pushed it to the limit, and now I was being pushed back. Did the guide invent this story to scare me off from shooting more, as I hadn't listened to his advice earlier today? I find this difficult to imagine, as he'd always been very straight with me up to then. Whatever had actually taken place, I took it as a sign to stop. After a restless night, it was finally time to go. In a warm, traditional send-off, the family offered us barley wine and white silk scarves. Though we'd been through a lot together, I suspect that both sides were now relieved to see me go. This was also the last time I saw Meme. Two years later, after moving to the same camp, I was now leaving. Meme got severe stomach pains. He went to hospital in Leh and died a few days later in his townhouse.
Nomad life is like a goat dropping on the mountaintop. You never know which way the wind will blow it. This is a saying of our ancestors. Life was precarious on the high plateau, where illness could spell disaster and a single snowstorm could wipe out the animals on which the nomads totally depended. Yet far more destructive to nomadic life than any snowstorm was modernization. In the village that I'd been visiting, the population had nearly halved in the four years since I first came there, as kids were sent to school and parents moved to town. I was driving away from a disappearing way of life, without any car problems whatsoever, I might add. The passing of Meme was the passing of a whole world. How well had I come to know this man in all our time together? The last day's strange events once again showed how little I understood what was going on with these people. Busy chasing my story, what had I actually missed? How much of what I encountered was just a reflection of myself and my own ideas? After I left the nomads, the film was finished. While Meme still continued moving from pasture to pasture, I was now traveling from film festival to film festival. <laughs> Are my stories of any benefit to you? Such gossiping. As this radio documentary shows, Meme's stories continue to benefit me even after his passing. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doconone.